Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey guys, LD here from Rock and Roll Heaven. Just want to give you a little bit of heads up. This episode has pretty much everything that anyone under the age of 15 probably shouldn't hear. Is that correct, TJ? Absolutely, Chairman. All right, so listener discretion is totally advised. You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven. My name is not LD, I'm actually Will the Thrill, and uh, you're on with uh, TJ2 the Deuce. Is that some form of caffeine? Yes. So no LD today? Is that what you're telling me? Yes, I will be playing the role of LD tonight. LD is actually at Dragon Con here in the lovely city of Atlanta, leaving us all by our lonesome. So we're going to see how bad we can screw this up. Hey, stag party. I know, right? (laughs) So there will be beer. Yeah, we're going to have, this going to be like, uh, there's going to be like, boobies and whiskey and and nacho cheese flavored bugles you brought all that stuff didn't you oh yeah yeah strippers are coming too okay awesome sweet yeah sweet so here we are you've got tj and will thrill this week ld is off having a grand old time we're gonna try to hold down the fort and i believe do a very shall we say impactful episode of will and jennings on this one correct yeah uh we're we told you last week we're down to two more so after today we've only got one this is our penultimate episode and i need to tell everybody something at the outset I don't want to tip too much of what's common, but, uh, you know, if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, you understand the eventuality of every series that we do. When we get to the end of the episode today, you're going to think that we are finished, that the series is done and that we're going to move on to Dwayne Allman next week. That's not the case. There is one episode still to come, but the ending is going to be a little bit different today than usual. As we're actually going to flip the script a tiny bit, and Will is going to go ahead and give you our socials and tell you how you can give us money and the aforementioned, you know, boobies, whiskey, and uh, nacho cheese flavored bugles, if you so choose. Yes, I think it's a good time to do that because, you know, they always say never applaud an actor before the performance, but uh, we're asking you to do precisely that. Hey, you haven't heard this episode? Give us money. Why not, right? Fortunately, we have a Patreon for that. It is patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. We do have a Twitter, but it is a deserted wasteland, so I do not advise you going there. Instead, check us out on Instagram, rock and roll heaven LT. Pop over to Facebook. We got a lot of fun stuff going on there. I will say that uh, Thea, who's running that, is absolutely killing it, doing a fantastic job. So interact with her and the team over there. Rock and roll heaven pod on Facebook. I am still not saying our website. We are on TikTok. That is a thing. Rock and Roll Heaven Pod on TikTok. Check us out. We got some fun videos. We also have some not so fun videos. We got some things about some uh, morbid news, which we will share, of course. And you can email us. Why not email us? Say, hey, what's going on? Why have you done this? Why haven't you done that? We can answer and we can explain all of these things at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. And again, we are very proud to be sponsored by the Pantheon Network. They are the ones who hold up this show. So thank you, Pantheon, and all that you do. Check out other great podcasts at www.pantheonpods.com. So speaking of morbid reports, we did have a loss. Yeah. Yes. Unfortunately, the great Bernie Marsden, known best for his guitar work with the band Whitesnake, 
has left the party, folks. Yeah, I was trying to uh, figure out exactly when he was in White Snake because I think Dave Coverdale hired and fired musicians rather quickly, and I, <laughs> I, so I think they had lots of guitarists. But yeah, uh, but he had, he did a lot of other work. I think he was pretty pretty respected blues guitarist on top of his work for White Snake. So obviously a terrible loss there. Yeah, exactly. So Bernie, we miss you. Thank you for all the songs. We did a little tribute over there on TikTok for you. But I think that is the only passing we're going to cover for this week. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We can jump right back in to the insane ride has will bring us to 15 episodes, 15, not quite yep. Michael Jackson territory, but as close as anybody's ever got yeah, as close as we can get. So yeah, in our last episode on the late great Waylon Jennings, we talked about his time in the super group, the highwaymen, but we also talked about how he and his highwaymen bandmate, Johnny Cash, both had heart bypass surgeries at the same time and both would battle con- continuing health problems going forward and that is where we pick things up this week who would have thought those pancakes and hash browns prepared by cash every morning would backfire i right i mean when i think of a you know a healthy hard healthy well-rounded breakfast i think of something johnny cash cook in a suit right in a suit yes and then of course waylon hilariously after he got off of cocaine obviously he had a voracious appetite he ate a lot more and that apparently often included Picking up a dozen donuts. I'm just going to assume, given where he lived, it's probably Krispy Kreme. So they're already fried. And he would deep fry them in butter and eat them like all like a dozen. So they're double fried donuts. Fried and fried again. Yeah. And he smoked six packs of Marlboros and yeah, six packs of Marlboros a day and 20 year drug addiction and not sleeping for 11 days at a stretch. Apparently, given the lesson from Waylon, not good for you. Yeah. I'm not a doctor, but I'm going to say that adds up. Would not, uh, would not have thought that. But anyway, as we start today, Waylon was in the studio. Now, because the High Women dropped their first album in 1985 and their third and final one came out in 1995 and we only discussed the Highwaymen last week, we had to jump around a lot in terms of timeline to tell the group's story. So let's back up just a little bit to the mid-1980s. Two episodes back, we told you that Waylon's record sales had cooled off a bit. 
That continued with 1985's album Turn the Page, which peaked at number 23 on the country charts, though it did have a number two hit in the song Drinking and Dreaming. His follow-up album would be Sweet Mother Texas in 1986, and that is sort of where some issues that had been accumulating for a while finally came to a head. In truth, Waylon's record sales were not bad. They just weren't breaking records as they had previously. Waylon said that had he been a young, up-and-coming artist, RCA would actually have been enthused by his success, would have tagged him as a future star, and would have more marketing muscle behind him. However, he was now pushing 50, so he was instead seen as someone who had peaked already. So they didn't put a lot of effort into pushing his work. Now, I told you a minute ago he was sitting in the studio, and he was, but not to record an album. RCA label bosses had given him a long list of names with phone numbers to call. They wanted him to call radio stations, general managers, and basically beg for airplay, which was something that was common with new artists, but not established legends like Waylon Jennings. He's not the begging type either. Uh, yeah, I don't think. <laughs> I can't see that. Hey, Hoss, I just wanted to uh, call you up. Got my hat in my hands here, hoping you'd give him a record to spin. Yeah, that doesn't seem like a thing Waylon's going to say. Don't but. picture that, yeah. Yeah. He was also nearing the end of his contract, and the offer that he'd gotten for an extension from RCA was pretty lowball. He'd been with the company for some 20 years and had released 32 studio albums for them, but he decided it was time for a change. He tossed that list of phone numbers in the trash, and he walked out of the studio. His time with the company, for now at least, was over. And his final release was that album, Sweet Mother Texas. It got almost no promotion from RCA, and only one single was released from it. Rather hilariously, a label boss asked a new guy at the company to listen to that record and write down his opinion of it. The guy wrote down that with his track record, he did not believe it lived up to the um, to Waylon's past legendary work. That note ended up on Waylon's desk, and he wrote one back to the guy, telling him, quote, shove your track record and kiss my legendary ass. See, that's Waylon. That's what we know and love. There you go. Come on, that's Waylon. Waylon opted to sign with MCA Records, and that did lead to a noticeable change in his sound. He had a new producer in Jimmy Bowen who wanted to, quote, update Waylon's music away from the more stripped-down but hard-driving ways that he had long embraced. He would not write any songs or play any guitar on the sessions for his first MCA album, and only one member of his band, that being bassist Jigger Bridges, would play on it. Quote, compared with some of my earlier works, it might not have fit people's expectations of me. That was the point, he said. Later on, though, Waylon said his first MCA album represented him, quote, imitating himself and trying to, quote, satisfy people who thought I had ruined my music by straightening up. Still, it did work. The record Will the Wolf Survive hit number one on the country charts, and it produced three top ten singles, including the title track, which you might recognize it was originally done by Los Lobos. Really? The follow-up to that one, yep, you know, Waylon had a tendency to pick some really interesting songs to cover that you wouldn't think of, in a lot of cases, you know, male outlaw country artists cutting. I mean, you know, he did Gold Dust Woman, and he did, you know, Baker Street, and he did Do It Again, and The Entertainer, which we heard a couple of episodes back. So he had kind of a knack for taking covers that seemed like maybe they wouldn't work, and he somehow made them work, except for... MacArthur Park, because it sucks no matter who does it. Someone left the cake out in the rain. No one can save that. Someone left the cake out in the rain, because you've never heard of a cake box, you douche. <laughs> not not calling Waylon a douche, calling just the narrator in the song, just in general. 
His follow-up to Will the Wolf Survive was 1987's Hanging Tough. Interestingly, Will, another venerable act working to regain past acclaim and glory dropped an album that same year. It was called Mask, and it was released by Manfred Mann's Earth Band. Oh, it's so good. Well done. Well done indeed. So let's have Tom take it away. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Tom McGuinness, and that was your federally mandated Manfred Mann reference of the podcast. I hope you are satisfied. Oh, brilliant. I never tire. We'll never get old. Never. Absolutely. Thanks, Tom. Now, Waylon's album, Hanging Tough, didn't do quite as well as its predecessor, but it did reach the top 20. And it is significant for one reason, that being that it contained Waylon's 12th and final solo number one hit. This one was the lead single off of Hanging Tough. It spent 19 total weeks on the charts. We're going to hear it now. This is Waylon with his very last trip to the top of the charts as a solo artist. This is Rose in Paradise. was a flower for the taking Her beauty cut just like a knife He was a banker from Macon Sport a lover all his life He bought her a mansion on a mountain With a former garden and a lot of land but paradise became her prison That Georgia banker was a jealous man Every time you talk about her You can see the fire in his eyes You'd say, I would walk through hell on Sunday To keep my rose in paradise Hired a man to tend the garden To keep an eye on her while he was gone Some say they ran away together Some say that gardener left alone Now the banker is an old man That mansion's crumbling down All day and stares at the garden Not a trace of her was ever found Every time he talks about her You can see the fire in his eyes He says, I would walk through hell on Sunday To keep my rose in paradise now there's a rose out in the garden Its beauty cuts just like a knife They say it even grows in the wintertime And blooms in the dead of the night
And we're back. All right. So, um, Will, obviously, that is starting to sound a little more like late 80s into 90s country. Yeah, I like it. a little smoother than some of the stuff we've heard from Wiley. What did you think? I, I thought it was great. Uh, I thought the lyrics were, were very good. And like you said, musically, it almost sounded like Clint Black a little bit. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a little smoother uh, than, than, you know, the kind of rough and, you know, sort of rough and rowdy stuff Wiley normally. But I, so I also have this question. Do you think that Rose ran away with the gardener? Do you think that she died? Or do you think that the banker killed her and buried her in the garden? Because uh, I can see any of those three things being what happened. I think it's the latter. She definitely died. And there's that last that last stanza there with that there's a rose out in the garden, like the eerie, ominous, you know, like she's still there, you know? <laughs> right. So maybe, maybe the maybe the maybe she was messing around with the gardener and the banker killed her. Banker murdered her. That, that That's my take on it. So, so which uh, belies the, uh, the the otherwise uh, <laughs> lovely nature of the song. What, what do you think happened? Hey, he clearly murdered his wife and put her body in the garden. <laughs> and yet, like you said, it's just a smooth, just, kind of easy sound, you know? Yeah. And yeah, there's a lady who's plant food at the end of it. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, like that, I like that song. So it's a, it is. It's a really good song. That was Waylon's final ever number one. Wow. Um, let's move away from music for just a moment. Now, Waylon didn't do a whole lot of acting, but in 1985, Waylon appeared on the big screen with one of his buddies, though not Willie, Johnny, or Chris. Quote, I'm proud to say that I'm a personal friend of Big Bird, Waylon said. We've gotten here finally. Yes. One of the things I know Will's been waiting for. Absolutely. As such, Waylon ended up playing a perky farmer in Sesame Street Presents, Follow That Bird. (laughs) Oh, I love um, it. Big Bird was played by Carol Spinney, who also provided the voice of Oscar the Grouch. When they were filming the movie, they drove around in a real turkey truck to film scenes, and I believe the movie was shot mostly in Toronto. Waylon said that turkeys are really nasty animals and that he smelled like turkeys for weeks after the shoot. Oh, man. At this point in 1985, Waylon was clean, but he did still smoke cigarettes. During a break, the two were sitting in the truck and Waylon was having Marlboro Light. Spinney had not smoked for 10 years, but sitting there, both of them covered in flies, he apparently thought one might be in order, so he bumped one off of Waylon. The top half of Big Bird's costume was sitting off to the side. At a certain point, Waylon smelled something burning. Oh, man. He had inadvertently flicked some cigarette ashes on the top half of the costume, and it was going up in flames. You said Big Bird on fire? Waylon said Big Bird on fire. That is my new crazy Waylon like moment. That's my favorite one now. Everything else I've mentioned, I'm second. Yep, this is, yep, he, he said Big Bird on fire. I think that wins. I think that beats tying George Jones to a tree or doing coke with the Oakland Raiders <laughs> in the Big locker Bird room or anything. On fire. Quote, that's a good way to get yourself strung up by a bunch of four-year-olds, Waylon said. <laughs> and with all that in mind, here is a quick fun fact. Fun fact. Waylon said that Spinney actually had a TV monitor inside the Big Bird suit so that he could see himself from the outside to make sure that his movements were smooth and lifelike, which I did not know. Interesting. Yeah. Also, Waylon did appear on Sesame Street a few years later. He had never actually seen the show until his youngest child, Shooter Jennings, was a kid. And Waylon said that he actually really liked it. He said it was engaging, that it didn't talk down to kids or treat them like they were dumb that the music was actually good and that it was educational. It later inspired him to write some poems that Shooter told him sounded like they should be songs, which led Waylon to record them for a children's album called Cowboys, Sisters, Rascals, and Dirt. 
Um, so I want you to think about the juxtaposition, Will, of, you know, crazed Waylon up for 11 days, roaring on coke, had four women on four different floors <laughs> of a hotel, and he did a kid's album. And he made a kid's album, yeah. I mean, yeah. That's, 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 those are quite things there. <laughs> it featured some young children singing background and had a special guest appearance by Oscar the Grouch. Nice. Waylon said his, yeah, Waylon said his idea that it was songs about kids sung by a kid who just happened to be stuck in a grown-up body. Another acting gig, several years later, Waylon would make an appearance on Married with Children as Ironhead Haynes, who was a sort of mythical, manly figure who Al Bundy sought out to learn how to battle the scourge of political correctness. Waylon performs a song in that episode that is comprised of one word. He just picks up his guitar, hits one chord, and goes, nothing, and that's it. And that's his whole appearance. When jokingly asked in an interview, right, when, when jokingly asked later by an interviewer who wrote the lyrics, Waylon said, quote, it took four of us, actually. <laughs> um, now, I found this interesting. He had actually met Ed O'Neill when the two both happened to be in Ireland at the same time before he appeared on the show. And he said he was surprised how little in common Ed O'Neill seemed to have with his very famous TV character. Hmm. The show actually used one of his other songs previously, having a couple of characters sing Good Hearted Woman, just oh, by the way. And I'll tell you what, since we just talked a lot about Wales association with his buddy Big Bird, and since, you know, Bird managed to survive the, the whole nasty flick Ashes incident, let's hear a song that Waylon did for that movie. This is, this is pretty special, and I know this is one Will's been waiting on. This is Waylon, Big Bird, The Count, Grover, Cookie Monster, Gordon, and Olivia with Ain't No Road Too Long. This here's a turkey truck. Oh, well. But, but my friend Oscar always says that I'm a big turkey. Well, I don't guess I can argue with that. Hop in. So you are the bird on the run, huh? Oh, yeah. And I can't wait to get back to my real home on Sesame Street. I figure I can walk back there in, oh, about uh, three hours. Three hours? More like three weeks, buddy. Three weeks? Oh, no. I'll never get home. Sure you will. You just got to keep going. Pick up your feet and follow your feet. Well, I don't know. Listen to me, son. I found out a long time ago Gotta learn to say yes when life says no Don't dwell on the bad times once they're past That kind of thinking gets you nowhere fast Cause there ain't no mountain you can't climb If you hang on tight and just make up your mind Once you set your heart to moving on Son, there ain't no road too long Don't look back, don't you turn around Just keep your eye on where you're bound And, and you're bound, bound to get, get from here, here to there. there Cause the dream can take you anywhere Whoa, take me to cookies! Cause there ain't no mountain 
reason you can't climb. If you hang on tight and just make up your mind. And once you set your heart to moving on, hut, hut, then there is no road too long. And you can count the telephone poles. One telephone pole, two telephone poles, three telephone poles, four telephone poles. Oscar, this isn't Route 12. Well, we're gonna find him, all right, Bert. Yeah. Hey, you remember what color he is? What? He's yellow. Hey. Cause there ain't no mountain you can climb if you hang on tight and just make up your mind. And once you set your heart to moving on, yeah, there ain't no road too long. Ain't no mountain you can't climb. That's right. If you hang on tight, then just make up your mind. Uh-huh. Once you set your heart to moving on. Sing it. There ain't no I just keep on going, everything will turn out fine. Cause there ain't no mountain you can't climb. If you hang on tight, then just make up your mind. Once you set your heart to moving on, son, there ain't no road to... And we're back. You know, Will, if you don't like that, I don't know that I would like you. That's fair, yeah, and I would not like myself, so... It's amazing. I mean, yeah, just, I mean, you've got Waylon and the Count, and Big Bird. How, how, what fault could one find with that, possibly? You can. You'd be a terrible person. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're a terrible person who has no soul. That, would, that, would, that, that is my statement on the matter. Now, I've mentioned Shooter a couple of times already. Waylon was determined to set a good example for him. He went ahead and told him about his past drug addiction, just as an example, figuring that if he didn't, someone else would. Quote, you drank beer? A young shooter asked him. Waylon told him no. He had actually been hooked on cocaine for a decade and pills for a decade before that, but he hadn't done either in a very long time. He decided to set an example in another way for his son. Waylon was asked to attend a charitable fundraiser by the then governor of Kentucky. He didn't even know what the fundraiser was for, but once he went out and played a show at this black tie dinner, he asked someone backstage, what's this all about? And he was told it was to raise money for something called Martha's Army which encouraged high school dropouts to get their GEDs. When he heard that, he walked back out on stage. Quote, now, I've got a pretty good job, but I've never walked into an office where I didn't feel a little bit intimidated because I knew on the other side of that door, there was somebody who was educated, and I'm not, he said. Hmm. Now, if you remember way back to episode one, Waylon was approached by his school superintendent and asked if he planned to play football that school year. When he said that he had decided not to, the superintendent asked him why he was bothering with school, and that made sense to Wayland, who didn't like being there anyway, so he dropped out after only finishing the 10th grade. Once he walked off the stage, 
the governor's wife approached him and told him he had to get his GED, and he told her that he would. He'd stressed the importance of education to Shooter, and getting his GED would show that that sentiment was genuine. So Shooter, who was about 10 at the time, actually helped his dad prep for the test. Apparently, Shooter was studying fractions, and Waylon said other than figuring out his split of the house take for a concert, he had never done a fraction in his life. <laughs> so funny. his 10-year-old right, helped him to study for the math portion of this test. And I can happily report Waylon passed the test, making him a hospital school graduate at, I believe at this point, 50 years old or 51 years old. Littlefield High School in Texas sent him a class ring and made him a member of the class of 1989. So there you go. Hey, Never too late. Now, you'll also remember that in our last episode, Waylon and his friend Johnny Cash had both had heart bypass surgeries. Well, their friend George Jones had one not too long after them, or at least he was supposed to. George's wife called Waylon and relayed to him, that George was flatly refusing to have the very necessary surgery unless he could talk to Waylon first and unless Waylon would help him through the subsequent physical therapy. Quote, <laughs> I'm counting on you not to let them do anything to me to make me look silly, George said. Waylon told his old buddy there was absolutely nothing a doctor could do to make George look any sillier than he had ever made himself look <laughs> on numerous occasions. <laughs> nice. Still, he was by his French side. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Still, he was by his friend's side every step of the way. And despite the whole crazy, violent, drunken rampage in Waylon's living room that led to him being tied to a tree thing, the two were like brothers. In fact, when George's battles with alcohol led his career to falter and to him going flat broke, it was Waylon and Johnny Cash who quietly paid off enough of George's debts to allow him to keep his home, his cars, and his tour bus, all of which were going to be repossessed. Oh, my God. Is that bad? That's a friend. Wow. Yeah. Yes. George was basically living in a car. He weighed less than 100 pounds. You know, he wasn't, his behavior was erratic. He wasn't showing up for shows. He was broke. And it not only broke, but deeply in debt. And he was about to lose, you know, his cars, his house, and his tour bus. And because Waylon and Johnny quietly went to the bank and paid off those those debts for him, he was able to keep them. And that that if that doesn't tell you the kind of fellows that we're dealing with, I don't know what does. No, for sure. Um, in fact, George only found out who his benefactors were because someone at the bank told him, quote, I know he'd do the same for me if I needed it, Waylon said. Back to the music now, Waylon released two more albums for MCA, including one called A Man Called Hoss and another called Full Circle, but wasn't happy with how things were going. He said the label was just in complete turmoil at this point. He said his association with Jimmy Bowen at MCA had been fruitful, but he called him and he asked to be let out of his contract with two albums still left on his deal. Bowen granted him his release and Waylon ended up on Epic Records. As was the case when he first signed with MCA, his first record on Epic was a big hit right out of the box. The Eagle, which was released in 1990, hit the top 10 on the country album charts and produced a pair of hit singles. The song Wrong was the biggest, making it all the way to number five. And those are very significant numbers. The Eagle would actually be Waylon's final top 10 album of his career, and Wrong would be his final top 10 single, as some changes are coming that we'll talk about shortly. Um, the title track of the album reached number 22 early 1991, and it would stand as the final of Waylon's more than 90 top 40 hits. That was his last top 40 hit. Wrong, if you listen to it, to me, sound a bit like a product of its time. And The Eagle, to me, actually is a really good song. But I actually want to play another track off the album. This one was released as a single. And though it did chart, 
didn't actually make the top 40 stalling out in the mid 60s. This is going to be a launching point for another discussion, though. So let's go ahead and hear this right now. This is Waylon with a song called Where Corn Don't Grow. As we sat on the front porch of that old gray house where I was born and raised Stared out at the dusty fields where daddy always worked hard every day I think it kind of hurting when I said daddy there's a lot that I don't know Don't you ever dream about a life where corn don't grow He just sat there silent, staring in his favorite coffee cup I saw a storm of mixed emotion in his eyes when he looked up He said, son, I know at your age It feels like this whole world is turning slow And you think you'll find the answer to it all Where corn don't grow Hard times are real There's dusty fields No matter where you go You may change your mind Cause the weeds are high Where corn don't grow I remember feeling guilty When daddy turned and walked back in the house I was only 17 back then but it seems like I knew more than I do now I can't say he didn't tell me This city life's a hard road to hold It's funny how a dream can turn around Where corn don't grow Hard times to real There's dusty fields change your mind cause the weeds are high where corn don't grow you may change your mind cause the weeds are high where corn don't grow and we're back all right. Now, now, were you familiar with Waylon's version of that song, Will? No. And in fact, I'm I'm liking this episode's uh, Waylon selections. These are I like these a lot. Yeah, that was that was a really like that song a lot. Now, a lot of people may not have ever heard Waylon's version of that song before, but they probably recognize it because it was a big hit for Travis Tritt in 1996. Hey, TJ, I hate to cut in, but we're going to take a short break for our sponsors. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report. And you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And we're back. We are back to talk more about Old Hoss himself, the great Waylon Jennings. His version made it to number six on the country charts. He said the first time he heard Waylon's version, he knew it was something he wanted to cut eventually. And that brings up the subject of the so-called new country movement in the late 80s and into the early 90s. That's when country radio basically just started to purge older artists from the playlists entirely. And you really need only look at the charts after 1990 to see visual evidence of this. After 1990, Waylon had one top 40 hit. Willie Nelson had one top 40 hit, and that didn't come until 2016, by the way, much, much later. Oh, wow. Johnny Cash had none. Johnny Cash did not have another top a top 40 country hit after 1990. Not even hurt, by the way. Really? That's which, I think got more, which I think got more like rock and pop play than it did country, if, if I remember yeah, probably. correctly. Yeah. Uh, Dolly Parton and George Jones both had five or six apiece. That's it. The path was being cleared for younger, seemingly more marketable stars. There was a much-discussed class of 89, which included, among others, Garth Brooks, Clint Black, Alan Jackson, and Travis Tritt, all of whom scored their first hits that year. Now, obviously, those four became gigantic stars, with all putting out multiple albums that sold three million or more copies. The era of SoundScan revealed how popular country actually was, and that actually kind of got everybody's attention when... One of Garth's early albums knocked Metallica's Black Album out of the number one spot on the Billboard charts. I remember and that, yeah. That's when a lot of a lot of people, I think, yeah, you remember, I think Lars Ulrich's quote was, what's a Garth Brooks? <laughs> it was something like that, yeah. Something to that effect. In truth, country probably didn't magically, quote, get popular when accurate accounts of sales were introduced. They'd probably always, you know, already been so, or at least since the 1970s when album sales became more of a thing in country. And the numbers had probably been lowballed for years. Now, many older artists expressed their frustrations over being pushed to the side. If you'll remember back to our Tammy Wynette series, you'll remember that she was very upset with the treatment she got, saying that she didn't know that age had anything to do with talent. Waylon said he would definitely have gotten more support and more airplay if he had been under 40 instead of over 50 at this point. And there is a bit of a perception that Waylon got particularly bitter as he got older, and he didn't embrace or acknowledge the younger up-and-coming talent. And that is actually completely untrue. In his autobiography, he spoke very highly of several of those young up-and-comers, including Mark Chestnut, Leroy Parnell, Beth Nielsen Chapman, and some others. 
in other interviews I watched, he spoke very highly of Lyle Lovett and Randy Travis, and he apparently absolutely loved Dwight Yoakam. Thought he was fantastic, which everybody should, in my it's opinion. But, fantastic. Uh, yes. He had a short-lived series on the old Nashville Network, and he had many of the young singers on the program alongside his older friends. He, of course, if you know much about Waylon, saved his very highest praise and compliments for Travis Tritt. The song that we referenced last week called I Ain't Song includes the line, quote, Travis Tritt's got all the talent, at least it seems that way to me. He's kind of brash and cocky, but he's got a right to be. Tritt obviously brought some like heavy Southern rock influences in the country, and he had a rebellious attitude that Waylon probably dug as well. And he was a huge Waylon Jennings fan. And the feeling became more than mutual. In fact, many new artists counted Waylon as one of their big inspirations. Mark Chestnut, as an example, named one of his sons Waylon, which I think means you like the dude. Can't get a better tribute than that, no. Yeah, which is why we have so many, uh, we have so few people in America named Mao or Adolf. <laughs> like, we don't have many Satans, little, little uh, Satan Smith over there that, yeah. yeah didn't catch on. Right. You name, you name your kids after names you like, people you like. So Mark obviously loved Waylon. At some point in the 1990s, Trace Adkins opened for Waylon at a big outdoor concert. He recounted on CMT that with the show being in the summer and in the South, basically every bug within a 100 mile square radius was drawn to the lights where the venue was. He said Waylon got so annoyed at one point that he said, oh my, quote, these goddamn bugs are flying in here in shifts now. Yeah, we, at, we which point, that way at which point Trace made a mental note, quote, it is okay to say goddamn on stage. Waylon did it. I mean, yeah. I just, I just love That's, that story. Uh, yeah. um, as a funny aside, Waylon said he was at some sort of industry function, maybe an award show or something, and he had someone tap him on the shoulder. Quote, Mr. Jennings, you're like a god to me, said a young singer named Billy Ray Cyrus. Oh, man. Quote, if I'm your God, I'd hate to see what your devil looks like, was Waylon's response. That's a good one. Well done uh, again. That Waylon, always with the quill. That's so Waylon. That's so Waylon. Now, everything I just told you doesn't mean that Waylon was a fan of everybody. And he was not shy about sharing his opinion on the biggest newcomer of the bunch, that being, of course, Garth Brooks. Mm. In the book, Dreaming Out Loud by Bruce Feller, Waylon was quoted as saying the following. Quote, he's the most insincere person I've ever seen. I remember a few years ago, an old buddy of mine who worked with Ernest Tubb was giving him an old record, Waylon said. He tried so hard to cry, but he just couldn't do it. He thinks it's going to last forever. He's wrong. So wow. not pulling any punches there, Will. No, I don't think Waylon's type to do that. And I actually had heard that uh, he had issues with Garth. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is, if you've ever seen the Garth interviewed, Best example, I think, was CMT used to do this thing called Inside Fame. It was kind of like a country behind the music. And if you watch the one they did on Garth, he, he, he cries a lot. Yeah, he does. He's a very weepy gentleman. <laughs> but yeah, Waylon flat out said he didn't like him. Um, was not shy about saying so. But that brings us up to one of the most famous quotes attributed to Waylon Jennings in his entire life. So I asked the question, did Waylon... Or did Waylon not say of Garth Brooks, quote, he did for country music what pantyhose did for finger fucking. Wow. That, now, that's, how did he, how yeah. do you really feel? I wonder. Right. That is, um, 
that paints that paints a picture. Indeed, um, it does. Indeed. Picture, definitely one. Now, I need to state state right up front: there is no record of Wayland ever saying that on the record at any point to anyone. But that doesn't mean that he didn't say it. Now, the website Saving Country Music did an outstanding deep dive story on this quote. And once this episode drops, I may just post a a link to that story, although it's it's about 10 years old now. You can still find it. Before we get to that, though, I want to kind of examine with you, Will, how quotes like this take on a life of their own. To me, I think the first part that has to be cleared is, does it seem plausible, right? You agree that's for for something to take hold in the public consciousness, it's got to sound like a thing that could have happened, right? Wait, are you saying in the context of that you can picture the person saying it? Of yeah, and it, not this okay. quote in particular. Just any any quote, any story that just takes hold, it has to at least seem believable. I think. Yes, agreed. Yes. Okay, so could we see Waylon having said this? I I absolutely can. Yes, but, uh, definitely. We both could could have, most certainly. Okay, then it becomes: Does the person hearing it want to believe it? If you're inclined to like Waylon or to not like Garth, you're probably more willing to accept the quote as being genuine because it sort of reinforces your own beliefs, in my opinion. But back to this article. The author suspects, as do I, that Waylon probably did say it at some point, though not interviewer on the record. Um, Apparently, though, whoever did did for whatever what Pantyhose did for fingerfucking was a phrase that was used and, and was popular before Garth ever put a record out. So Waylon didn't coin the phrase necessarily. People had apparently said for a while, well, such hmm. and such did for whatever what pantyhose did for finger, you know, for fingering. Yeah. So it wasn't, he didn't create that that line necessarily. The author of, of the story I'm referencing says that some people say the quote actually originated with Pootie Locke, who you remember we discussed previously, it was Willie Nelson's road manager and who right. had a great name. Yeah, it is. It can't beat that. Someone named Hootie talked about fingering. You know what? I'm just going to move on. I think this is where LD would tell me to move on. (laughs) The first record of the quote actually being used came in, of all places, an account of Willie Nelson's 70th birthday party in 2003. Now, hang on. Hang on. Hang on. I want to point out he was 70 in 2003. Yep. It is now 2023. I'm just And saying. he's 90 and he just had a birthday party Good and smoked crazy. a dude with and, yeah. and rolled a big fat one with Snoop on stage, apparently. As one would, yeah. And and good, good for them. Um so yeah, so it's so that's in two thousand three. But now fast forward to two thousand and nine. Actor Ethan Hulk wrote a piece for Rolling Stone on Chris Christopherson. He recounted Willie's seventieth birthday. Singer Toby Keith said to Chris just before the two went on stage, quote, none of that lefty shit out there tonight, Chris. Now, he Hmm. wrote that that led to an obscenity-laced tirade from Chris in which he asked Keith if he'd ever worn his country's uniform or killed a man and then cashed the check his country gave him for doing so. When Keith said whatever, Chris supposedly said, quote, you know what Ellen Jennings said about guys like him? They're doing for country music what pantyhose did for finger fucking. So oh, that's so the first time that person who wrote, right? Well, not really, <laughs> but but maybe <laughs> that's, that's the first written account that this uh, that the author of the story I'm referencing could it, find is this Ethan Hawk piece. And I don't know about you. I mean, clearly, I wouldn't start anything with Whalen. So, I wouldn't start anything with Chris either. Yeah, those are two guys I'm not screwing with. And I mean, I'm now, not Whalen dead yeah. and Chris being 87. 
Yeah, no, it's point stands. Yeah. The ghost of Waylon Jennings could probably kick my ass. I'm, <laughs> I'm not too proud to say that. Okay, but now let's go back to the rule that you and I just established, Will. Does that story sound plausible? I'm going to say yes. I, I would say I, I guess so. And I think if you like Chris or you don't like Toby or you agree more with Chris's political and worldviews than you do with Toby's, you would likely be inclined to believe it. The main problem with the story as written by Ethan Hawke is that it never happened. So it never happened. Ethan Hawke just made it up? Chris said he had no memory of ever talking like that to anyone at Willie's party, least of all Toby, quote, for whom I have nothing but admiration and respect. Uh-huh. Toby Keith very, very angrily denied the allegations too, saying that he and Chris were friends and had written songs together. And I'm going to point something out. I normally wouldn't, but it seems germane. German to the topic, as uh, as uh, Jackie Gleason uh, would have said. What well, the Germans got to do with this? <laughs> I don't know if everybody knows it, and I think it's changed now. I think he changed to unaffiliated, but for most of his life, Toby Keith was a registered Democrat. So now he said he always said he was a moderate to conservative, sort of you know old school Southern Democrat. But you know that being the case, I don't know that he and Chris would have butted heads on a lot of stuff. <laughs> Yeah, largely what I know of Christopherson's political views. Yeah, it seems like they might agree on a lot. And you even went out to say that, that Whalen was kind of a, more of a moderate than some people painted him to be. Maybe maybe thought. Or, Possibly. Or, yeah. or maybe at one point was a little more progressive, and then maybe as he got older, he got a little more conservative. It's kind of hard to... He's, 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 not, he's a much more complicated and complex and thoughtful than people think. In my opinion, I don't think he's easy to pigeonhole in a lot of ways. But I think that's the main takeaway. That, that, yeah. that would be one. Now, one of the last quotes I ever found from him about where he seemed to be referencing politics was about the the author of his co-author of his um, autobiography, Lenny Kay, who he said was coming from the left and I'm coming away from the right. But hmm. he said that got along great, and you know he was pleased with the book. So then I'll go back to our last episode, listen to some of the stuff I laid out. It's not easy to pigeonhole necessarily to me hmm. in terms of that. But yeah, so. The whole story was apparently just made up. The Chris and Toby story. Wow. Yeah. Now the quote popped up in an article on Shooter Jennings, the 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 fingering comment, but it was not actually said by Shooter in that story as a direct quote. Okay, but then in 2013, in an interview with the Charleston City Paper in my home state of South Carolina, Shooter was at least somewhat. Garth Brooks' his country is shit. Back then, it was like, what the f is going on? This guy's terrible. This isn't country music. I would take that any day now. That means the bar has been lowered so far that we're like, please, I would listen to only Garth Brooks all day if that's what I could get. So not not a full-throated endorsement, but not, not indicating that he hated by any stretch. The quote got so much traction that Merle Haggard actually reacted to it. He said in 2012, quote, well, I think Waylon got dumber with age. I don't know. I love Waylon, but he was awful critical of different things. He just got grouchy. I love listening to Waylon and Willie and Johnny. They still set my ears to burning. I think what Waylon meant by the statement was that somebody ought to be able to walk on stage with a guitar and put on a good show that people can enjoy. We don't really need explosions to enjoy a concert, do we? So this got enough traction that it was actually... So again, maybe he said it, speaking of Waylon, and maybe he didn't. Hmm. For his part, whatever you might think of the guy... Garth never actually fired back, responded to Waylon for the things, even the things he said, did say publicly. The only public comment he ever made about Waylon came many years later in a radio interview when he revealed that he had never actually met Waylon. Quote, no, never met Mr. Jennings. 
And for some reason, man, I guess I was the guy that he targeted. You know, mm. it's kind of weird because all the people while I'm in the business, those people say the reason they were in the business was Waylon. So everybody loves him and he's a legend. And I just kind of let it go. I never knew what to say. And it's funny kind of being the non-traditionalist then. And now everyone looks at you like your stuff is as country as it gets. So that's kind of a weird view. It was tough for me because he was a country legend. And for some reason, I was the guy that got the brunt of it. I never took it that personal. I just think he was addressing the different sound in country music and the changing of the guard. That's tough for anybody to handle. The guy's a legend and deserves nothing but respect. So, you know, Garth kept it classy, it sounds like. And from what I understand, that's what he, he does. Yeah. You know, using with his fans and whatnot. Sure, sure. So he 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 never, even the things Waylon did say publicly about Garth being insincere and all that stuff, he, he, he never chose to respond to it. Waylon said partly because of the new country trend, Epic Records didn't put much marketing muscle behind his next album, which was called Too Dumb for New York City, Too Ugly for L.A., with <laughs> Waylon saying they, quote, sat on the record. That one only hit number 70 on the country charts. He was sort of forced by a new producer to team up with Willie for another duet album, which was called Clean Shirt. Now, Waylon, we've talked about it almost every week. Waylon loved Willie Nelson to death. They were the best friends. It's just he felt like that was being forced on him for the wrong reason, mm. and he didn't. He just he didn't want to do it. And Waylon said that one of the reasons he signed with Epic is because he was promised creative control, but he said suggestions about music seemed to morph into demands as time went on. So he left. And his next album, Old Waylon Sings Old Hank, in which he covered a bunch of Hank Williams songs, would be released on his own label, which was called WJ. And we actually heard his version of I'm So I Could Cry, lo, these many moons ago, back in episode one. Ah, the salad days. Ah, uh, yes. The, yes. Those were the, the days, days of our lives. In 1994, Waylon actually had a one-off reunion with his former label, RCA, for his album, Waymore's Blues, Part 2. He worked with a new producer and Don Was, who, as we discussed last week, also produced the final Highwaymen album. Waylon liked Don a lot and said Don wanted a, quote, impressionistic take, much like in painting. Quote, when we heard Waymore's Blues 2 come over the speakers, I understood what he was getting at. And I was proud of that album because it felt like I was getting back in command of myself. Sure of my creativity, knowing I was reaching for something I hadn't before and finding it. Don was actually played some stand-up bass on the record. And here is another fun fact. Another fun fact. Another fun fact. Playing organ on the album, Ben Tench. No kidding. Of Who? Tom Pratt. Tom Pratt. Yeah. For sure. Nice. He does a great job with it. Waylon wrote all but two of the eight, or all but two of the ten songs on this album, which is a bit of a switch because we've talked about it over time. Well, I, I think Waylon's a very good songwriter. He wasn't especially prolific, but he seemed to get more so as he got older. So because this was a very personal project for him, this is this is Waylon. His words, his music, his voice, his guitar, everything back in full force. We're going to hear a song from this one. This is Waylon with a song that he wrote about he, Willie, and Jesse conquering the Nashville system. This is a great song called Wild Ones. Straight out of nowhere 
and a little bit out of our minds. We were courting disaster with one foot over the line. It was one for the show and two for old Shorty and me. We were the wild ones We had the town up the tree We were the wild ones The ones they couldn't control We were survivors Good hearts, body and soul We were the winners because we didn't know we could fail. We were the wild ones. We had this town by the tail. Love that song. I've always loved that song. The interesting thing about it is it almost has like a Neil Diamond feel to it, doesn't it? A little bit? Maybe lyrically a little, vocally. And you know the funny, very funny thing, Waylon and Neil Diamond, friends. I mean, I feel like that makes sense. I don't know. Something about this song. At this point, nothing I tell you about Waylon probably going to surprise you. Or no, no, or, it wouldn't uh, surprise me at all, yeah. Unless you're like... take you aback or whatever. Um, he sat home and read a book. It was like, no, I don't believe that. <laughs> yeah. Right. As part of the prep for, for this episode, I actually went back and listened to that entire album, The Waymore's Blues Part 2. It's really, really good. It's it's one of one of my favorite of his latter-day albums. It, it's it's terrific. I love Don Was' production. Ben Munch, Ben Munch on the on the organ is great. You know, Waylon's playing guitar on this one. Check it out if you haven't in a while. 
never have. Now, Will, we obviously can't let the opportunity go to mention one last very famous Waylon Jennings walkout. Ah, yes. And this one might be the most epic ever. (laughs) Now, he obviously walked off the CMA Awards show and out of the We Are the World recording session. But in 1998, Waylon was to be the guest and originally the only guest of Tom Snyder on The Late Late Show on CBS. So great. Waylon found out um, on not much notice that radio personality Dr. Laura Schlesinger would also be a guest and would actually be going first. And he was not happy about that, but he decided to go on with the interview. He was still promised he would get at least, if not more than, 30 full minutes of interview time. After a bit, he started to get a little antsy, and he told someone he was getting awfully tired of waiting. He was assured it would only be a few more minutes. More than 20 additional minutes passed, and there are various versions of what Waylon actually said. But it was some variation of, quote, let me tell you something, Hoss. If I'm not on the air in 10 minutes, I'm out of here. I love it. The instant that his promised 30 minutes was infringed upon, Waylon told Jesse, quote, call for the car. And he got up. He walked out of the green room. He went to the elevator and Waylon Jennings left. I think this is made made epic by not only that, but Tom so, Snyder's reaction is amazing. His reaction. So when Snyder finally finished up with Dr. Laura, he was stunned to find his second guest, guest had bolted. So he comes back from a break and he's sitting across from an empty chair. And a clearly flustered Snyder said, quote, Waylon Jennings walked out of here about five to 10 minutes ago. He is not here. There is nobody in the chair. I have never had anybody leave before they came home. <laughs> um, oh my God. I tried to find a nice, concise version that we could actually play, and I couldn't. There's a version where you see... It's part of a TV special that was sort of excised, so there's, there's people talking over it, and I didn't want that. There's the full episode, uh, which we obviously don't have time to play. If we find a good, a good, solid, nicely edited version of it, we'll we'll post it on our socials because it part of the the joy of it is seeing the look of exasperation and bewilderment on Tom Snyder's face. It is amazing. And by the way, he had 18 minutes of of airtime to fill with no guest. The chair is empty. I love it. Yep. Well. Should have had him on sooner, Tom. And it's like we said when we alluded to this previously, Will, if Waylon was irritated, as he obviously was, it might just have been in Snyder's best interest that Waylon just leave. Yeah, probably. I, I don't I don't know that the interview would have gone especially well if Waylon was that irritated. It's maybe just best that he... I would say so, yeah. Best for, for Snyder, anyway. But that was uh, one last uh, act of public defiance by an old outlaw. He did have one other in the 90s. Back in 1996, he was actually a part of the annual Lollapalooza Festival. No joke. Believe it or not. I want to say at some point Cash was too, if I remember, Will. Do you? I don't recall. I mean, do not remember. Okay. I, I want to say Johnny was, but I know Waylon was. Now, of course, Lollapalooza was primarily made up of lots of rock, metal, alternative, and rap acts. When Waylon was on stage at one stop on the tour, a fight broke out right near the stage. Waylon supposedly walked over to that side of the stage, leaned down to the would-be gladiators, and shouted, quote, y'all knock that shit off. That's awesome. And apparently they did. And they listened. Yeah, because that's probably in your best interest at that point. Waylon released his final studio album in 1998, one called Closing In on the Fire, that featured some great guest contributions from the likes of Mark Knopfler, Cheryl Crow, Thing, and many others. He was also part of another one-off supergroup, this one called The Old Dogs, which is not as well known as The Highwaymen, but it featured he and his friends Bobby Bear, 
Jerry Reed, and Mel Tillis. All of the songs are about growing older, and most all of them were written by Waylon's old buddy from way, way back in the Hillbilly Central days, Shel Silverstein. And it was actually, sadly, one of the last things that Shel worked on before passing away in 1999. Oh, wow. So, yeah. However, I want to play a song from his next to last album, that being one called Right for the Time. Waylon, uh, Waylon later said that this album was about his ex-wives, plural, like all three of them. He's got a few um, of them. I picked the song specifically, right, because it's an interesting cover that I wanted some feedback from, from my brethren on the other end of the Zoom call, because the original is by a favorite of his. So we're going to hear it now. Here's Waylon covering The Boxer. I am just a poor boy, though my story is seldom told. I have squandered my resistance for a pocket full of mumbles, such are promises. All lies and jest, still a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. Mm. When I left my home and family, I was no more than a boy in the company of strangers In the quiet of a railway station running scared Laying low, seeking out the poor reporters Where the ragged people go Looking for the places only they would go Asking only workman's wages I come looking for a job But I get no offers Just to come on from the whores On 7th Avenue I do declare there were some times I was so lonesome That I took some comfort there
And we're back. All right. In terms of the song, Will, we're much more in your wheelhouse now. Yes, I would say so. Yeah. Uh, so so you're, obviously you're a big fan of the original. What would you think of Wayland's take on the boxer? No, I like it. I think it's a good version. I think that LD would definitely have something to add. I know she's a huge Paul Simon fan. Uh, I, I like the vocal work in it. And it made me realize something very interesting that I don't know why it's just landing on me now. Of all the highwaymen, Waylon was the only one who could sing. He had the best. He had the best traditional voice. singing voice for 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 sure. Yes. Did it hurt the other three? No, it did not. But uh, right, but yeah. But if you go back, to, his voice changed a little as time went on because six packs of Marlboros that they'll do that to you, I would imagine, along with age and some weight, the weight gain and some some of the other things that he dealt with. But if you go back and listen to some of those early ones we played, you know him singing Roy Orbison's "Crying" in the 1960s and his version of Delia. And even through the, he had, Waylon had real vocal range. He, the dude could sing. Yeah, he absolutely could. And whereas, you know, Chris, Willie, Johnny, they're, they're stylists and I love their, I, I love their music, but in the traditional sense, yeah, Waylon is, was by far the best singer of the whole group, a long way, in my opinion. Yeah. The others kind of found a way to talk through it again. Didn't hurt. Yeah. yeah certainly didn't hurt him. Now, Waylon, Unfortunately, was dealing with a lot of health problems later in life. The hard partying that he'd always done was leading to some hard living at this point. He joked that he was back on pills, but this time they were for his heart and his blood sugar. He had become severely diabetic, so I, I guess he would have been type 2 diabetic. Um, he was having difficulty getting around at times. So, for instance, if he flew into an airport, he would actually be pushed in a wheelchair to his car. Now, he could still walk. It was just sometimes, depending on certain factors. It was just a little bit of a struggle for him. He said in his book that he suffered from numbness in his hands at times so severe he couldn't feel his guitar strings, actually. Oh, jeez. He thought about, yeah, he thought about coming off the road entirely at times, but he said as soon as he would step on a stage and see the crowd and feel their energy and get their feedback and see the girls dancing, that he'd be hooked all over again. Still, he did play fewer and fewer shows as time went along. As for when he played his final concert, honestly, don't know the answer. If you search for that information online, you'll get the feedback about his Never Say Die show, which was at the Ryman Auditorium in early 2000. But they'll also know that was his last, quote, major concert. And I can personally vouch for the fact that Waylon played in an outdoor concert in Spartanburg, South Carolina in August of 2001 because <laughs> my wife was there. That's awesome. This is before we knew one another, but I wish I would have been there. But she was she was actually there in Solwayland. Now, one of one of our friends and listeners, Christopher, will actually had the opportunity to play with some of the some of Wayland's guys. I think, you know, Jigger and Richie and some of those guys. And and we may actually try to uh, hook up a little interview at some point and throw that in as sort of a bonus Wayland episode, maybe at some point. But he still knows some folks that were in Wayland's orbit. And he said, you know, he actually checked for me and he said to the best of their recollection, they think the last show he played was in Kansas City sometime in late 2001. I'd mentioned the Never Say Die show, though. We are going to hear one song from that show, which was put out as a live album with some of the songs omitted, but then was later expanded to include the entire concert. Now, Waylon did most of the show sitting down, but he got a lot of his old guys back together for this one big show. I think, you know, Jigger and... Richie and a lot, you know, I think Carter Robertson, Robertson, all these people who had been in his band for a long time got back together for this one big show. He did a lot of his classics and he had some guests like Travis Tritt and Montgomery Gentry. Hmm. Since he and Shell were so close, though, and we just mentioned that Shell had recently passed away, let's hear a live version of one song that Waylon and Shell actually wrote together. 
Uh, this one seems more applicable to our current time than it did even when Waylon and Shell wrote it or even sang it for this show. So we're going to listen to that one. Here is Waylon now with It's the World's Gone Crazy Cotillion. One, two, three, one, two, three. It's the world's gone crazy, Cotillion. Ladies are dancing alone. Cause the side men all want to be front men. And the front men all want to go home. The Johnny come late leaves are coming in early. The early birds showing up late. Straight men all want to be funny The funny men all want to get straight The villains have turned into heroes The heroes have turned into heels The dealers all want to be lovers And the lovers all want to make deals It's the world's gone crazy, continue Ladies are dancing alone. Side men all wanna be front men, and the front men all wanna go home. The meek, they ain't inherited nothing. The leaders are falling behind. So I'm singing my songs to the deaf man, dancing my dance to the blind. It's the world's gone crazy, Cotillion. The ladies are dancing alone. Cause the side men all wanna be front men. And the front men all wanna go home. It's the world's gone crazy, Cotillion. The ladies are dancing And we are back. All right. That was a fun one. That was a fun one. And that's, again, one that Waylon wrote with Greg Shell Silverstein, one of, his, one of his good buddies back from the Hillbilly Central days. So as the 90s gave way to the early 2000s, Waylon toured less and he spent more time at home with his family. He kept a karaoke machine and recorder in his home so that he could lay down some basic tracks uh, when he wanted to. And he worked on a couple of projects that wouldn't see the light of day for many years, but eventually. But mostly he wrote with a pencil and paper. That's where he got most of his creative satisfaction at that point. Quote, I think the most satisfaction I get is from writing a good song. I'm in no hurry. Sometimes I'll carry an idea around with me for a year, not knowing what I'm trying to say. Or the song itself will tell me what it means as it grows in my mind. Songs don't lie. I close my eyes and let it fill up my heart. Playing the music inside you, that's what a musician is, what I am. Unfortunately, his health woes continued. In early 2002, he had to have a foot amputated because of diabetes-related issues. Now, news accounts, Wikipedia, and history books will tell you that the great Waylon Arnold Jennings died in his sleep at his home in Arizona on February 13th, 2002. But don't you believe him, friends? Not Waylon Jennings. That idea is preposterous. There is no way that he went silently into that good night. Not the chief, not O'Halls, not the cricket, not Waymore, not the rebel, not the balladeer, not the old dog, 
not the highway man, and not the American badass. Just remember, music never dies. Legends are immortal. And outlaws, outlaws live forever. Catch tomorrow now You're gonna wanna hold me Just like I always told you You're gonna miss me when I'm gone Nobody here will ever find me But I will always be around Just like the songs I leave behind me I'm gonna live forever now Fathers and you mothers, be good to one another. Please try to raise your children right. Don't let the darkness take them. Don't make them feel forsaken. Just lead them safely to the light. When this old world is blown asunder and all the stars fall from the sky, remember someone really loves you. We'll live forever, you and I I'm gonna live forever I'm gonna cross that river I'm gonna catch tomorrow now I'm gonna live forever I'm gonna cross that river I'm gonna catch tomorrow now It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.